Nom Nom delivers fresh food with whole ingredients, backed by veterinarian science. Science tells us that a dog's health starts in the bowl. So, improving their diet is one of the best ways to help them live a long and happy life. Nom Nom's food is full of proteins your dog loves and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. All you have to do is order, pour, and serve. Ready to make the switch to fresh? Order Nom Nom today. Go to https colon slash slash trinom.com forward slash curveball and get 50% off your first order plus free shipping. That's https colon slash slash t-r-y-n-o-m dot com forward slash curveball. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by television sportscaster, teacher, author, and amateur sports official, Anne Montgomery. Anne has had an amazing career. She's done things like Anchor Sports Center and work for the Phoenix Suns. So we're going to be talking to her about her story and everything that she's done and some of the people she partnered with at Sports Center, like Mike Tarico and people like that. So, Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Curtis. I'm looking forward to it. Why don't you start off just by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Well, I've had a rather varied, strange career. Um, when I decided I wanted to be a sportscaster, I was 17. And if you do the math, it was back in the 70s when there simply weren't women sportscasters. So when my mother came up to me and said, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a sportscaster. She said, I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you. What's the matter with you? I'm like, no, really, I want to be a sportscaster. And I will say this, people told me no all along the way. They said, you cannot be a sportscaster. You're a woman. And um, honestly, it started when I was in high school. I was in a group called, I was in a broadcast crew, meaning every morning we did the announcements. And um, I was a big hockey fan. I grew up in an ice arena. I was an ice skater for 20 years and of no great skill, but I was. And uh, one day, one of the guys on the hockey team handed me an announcement to do on the, on, on the broadcast in the morning. And the guys in the, on the crew start fighting with me. They said, you can't read a sports story. You're a girl. And, and I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Of course I can. And the, the teacher who ran the broadcast crew came in and said, Annie can read whatever she wants, leave her alone. And after a while, every, everybody in school started giving me the sports stories. And the, the guys on the crew got a little annoyed by that. And so they gave me a theme song and it was Mission Impossible. Dun, 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 you know that, that song? And they started calling me Big Ann with the sports. And they, they, I think they did it to, to belittle me a little, but I kind of liked it. 
So um, from there on, I was convinced I wanted to be a sportscaster. And even though all through high school and college, and even when I got out of college, people kept saying, you can't do that. Um, I'm a stubborn sort. So uh, I was 28 before I got my first job in TV. So you anchored Sports Center in Bristol, Connecticut. So tell us about that, how you got that, and all the people that you got to work with that people are recognized if they're sports fans and like ESPN. Well, ESPN was my fourth station. Um, I, I got a job in Columbus, Georgia. Um, and, and let me explain how that happened because nobody would hire me. And um, one day I went to a hockey game, uh, a Washington Capitals game. And I was there with my aunt and she had a friend and he was a hockey official, an amateur hockey official, like for little kids. And he was bemoaning the fact that uh, there weren't enough hockey officials. And my aunt would said, oh, and can skate. Not pointing out I'd never been on hockey skates in my life. I was a figure skater. And um, he said, would you like to be a referee? And I said, sure. And I never put on hockey skates. So that very first game, the kids were like five-year-old little kids. Have you ever seen those little tiny kids who play hockey with their jerseys down at their ankles and their little sawed-off sticks and their helmets on crooked? And I went out to take my first face off and I fell down. And I couldn't get up because uh, I don't know if you know the difference between hockey skates and figure skates, but uh, figure skates have toe picks and you can just stick them in the ice and hop right back up. Hockey skates don't have that. So I kept falling over. I fell over three times and those little kids are staring down at me. The game was a mess. But what I learned on the way home when I thought about it was that the only people that read rule books are who? The officials. So if I could become a sports official in the five main team spectator sports, which would be football, baseball, ice hockey, soccer, and basketball. Maybe I would learn all about the sports I never played because I was before Title IX. So I did that. I spent five years officiating, and then a station in Columbus, Georgia hired me. I knew nothing about doing the news, but you know I could certainly tell you all about the games. And uh, I went from there to Rochester, New York, then to Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, then I got hired uh, at ESPN. They saw me on TV somewhere and they contacted my agent and I suddenly found myself in Bristol. And I will say this, Bristol was no fun. Um, I worked with some really good people. Mike Tirico was a great guy. Dan Patrick was a great guy. Um, uh, oh, the college guy. I can't think of his name right now. Um, anyway, there were some very nice people, but there were some real jerks too. Are you talking about Reese Davis? I'm sorry? Reese Davis. No, that was that. He was after me. Um, he, the guy that does the college, really nice guy. I shared a desk with him. I don't know why. I can't remember. But I will say this. Many of the people were very nice, but some of them were complete jerks. And they made it very difficult for me to be there. And I'll give you a perfect example. Curtis, are you a baseball fan at all? I most definitely am. My okay. team, the Atlanta Braves. Okay, this is for you then. So I was an umpire. And, and at the time, I was married to a minor league umpire. So baseball was our world. And uh, one night, I was live on, on the Sports Center set, and I'm sitting there. And, and if you're really lucky, you get to see the highlights before you go on. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes the games end while you're live on the air. And so an intern or a production assistant, they were called, would run in and throw highlights at you, and you just have to read them without seeing them. So the first thing on this, this shot sheet was – a fan being hit with a foul tip in the front row at Wrigley Field. Now that's not possible. I knew that, but I didn't, because I'm an umpire, because a foul tip cannot hit somebody. All right. So 
I'm, I'm annoyed, but I go through the highlights. I don't have time to fix it. In the end of every sports center, there's something called a postmortem. And in the postmortem, you discuss what went well in the show, what went poorly, what can we do to get better the next time. So I got 12 people sitting around a big conference table. And I raised my hand. I said, excuse me, Bob, to the intern or production assistant. I said, you handed me a shot sheet that said somebody got hit by a foul tip in the front row at Wrigley Field. I said, that's simply not possible. And there's silence at the table. And I said, look, a foul tip is different than a foul ball. A foul ball is a dead ball, goes out of play. The umpire goes foul. Everybody, if you're stealing second, you got to go back to first. It's a dead ball. A foul ball, a, a foul tip goes from the bat to the catcher's glove. It's a strike and it's a live ball. So if you're stealing, you can steal. I mean, there's, it's not a dead ball. Totally, two totally different things. So um, there's silence at the table. Nobody agrees with me. And the production assistant stood up and said, you're just being a picky bitch. And I said, no, I'm an umpire. And there's a difference between a foul ball and a foul tip. The next day, I got called into my boss's office, and he ordered me to apologize to the production assistant because I hurt his feelings. I didn't raise my voice. I didn't get angry. I just tried to explain that. Wouldn't you think ESPN would want would know the difference between a foul ball and a foul tip? You would think so. They didn't. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that happened a lot. They they hired me because they thought because I know what I'm doing. I spent m- most of my life in sports, and then they didn't believe me. That I knew about sports. Like, why did you hire me then? Absolutely. And you also were work with the Phoenix Suns. Speaking of them, I believe they're playing tonight. Uh, yes, they're, they better win or they're done. Um, absolutely. What happened after they didn't renew? I was at ESPN two years, and that's how long my contract was for. And I came back to Phoenix, and um, I was the, my problem at that point is I was pushing 40. And by that time, women are too old to be in front of a camera. They make that very clear because the um, the, av- the the target audience in sports is 18 to 34 year old males. So once they think once you're 35, guys aren't looking at you anymore. So it was very hard for me to find a job. But I'd been in Phoenix prior to going to ESPN, and I loved it out here. I still live here. And uh, so for two seasons, I was the studio host for the Phoenix Suns, and it was the two years where they lost to the Bulls in game seven with Charles Barkley and, and all of those guys. It was great fun. Um, I did a half hour pregame show. I did a halftime show and then I had a call in show at the end where I'd have guests and people would call in and talk to them. It was great fun. I, I did that two years and then I was simply not pretty enough to be on camera anymore. Oh, well, poor me. <laughs> well, you, you, you're also a teacher and you taught sports reporting at Arizona State. So tell us about that and what that, um, what that entails. If I take a sports reporting class. Well, I, when I, I didn't know what to do with myself. Honestly, I'd worked for five TV stations. I was done. Um, I, I actually applied for a sports writing job for a small local newspaper. And they went in and I said, look, hire me to write sports. They said, you don't know how to write sports. I said, I just spent 10 years on TV writing sports. They said, well, that's not the same. I begged them. It was like a $7 an hour job. And they gave me the job. They said, we'll give you a try. And it, on all my stories kept ending up on the front page of the paper. So I, I ended up writing for three newspapers and three magazines. And I enjoyed that, but it wasn't full-time work. And um, people kept telling me I should be a teacher because I had spent 
years and I ended up officiating for 40 years. I did not quit when I became a sportscaster, which I always thought I would, but I didn't. And so I spent a lot of time around high school kids uh, doing high school ball. And, and so people kept saying, you need to be a teacher. You need to be a teacher. And I did. I went back to college at 42, uh, got my, my teaching degree, then got my master's degree. And I taught in an inner city school here in Phoenix for 20 years, uh, mostly journalism. Um, but I also was a reading specialist. Many of our kids did not read at grade level. Um, and I also taught history, which I love. And uh, it wasn't until I, I retired from teaching after 20 years. That was enough. And last, was it last spring? Last spring, I taught at Arizona State University, the Walter Cronkite School. And I, they hired me to teach sports reporting. And that was fine, but it was a little problematic with some of the students. You know how at the end of this year, at the end of the semester, they rate the professor uh, or the instructor. Um, one of the kids said the next time Arizona State hires somebody who's going to teach sports reporting, they need to pick someone younger. What am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. I'm I'm sure you were a great teacher. Well, you know, I'd been a teacher 20 years and I certainly knew how to teach sports. But but here's the thing. When I went in, I, I had a small class. These were sophomores, juniors and seniors at the Walter Cronkite School. Very prestigious. And I asked each kid, what do they want? What do you want? What, what is, where do you see your future? In 10 years, where do you want to be? And they all went around. They all wanted to be sports journalists. So I said, okay, that's why you're here. Why am I here? And they all just stared at me like they were disappointed that I was their teacher. And I said, okay, you've got 10 minutes to Google me. And then by midnight tonight, you've got to write a 500-word article about why I'm your teacher. And I had to do that or they wouldn't have respected me at all. So while I'd like to say that, that the gender issues aren't what they were 40 years ago, they are. They're still the same. And then ageism, you know, you don't want to offend any, any college kids. They get really bent out of shape over little aggressions, but they're perfectly fine to give people crap for being old. So it was fine. I mean, I enjoyed most of the kids, but um, I don't know. I don't think I'm, I probably won't teach again. Well, tell us about your novels. Cause you're, you're, you're also an author. So you, you know, you've written sports stuff, but you're also an author, so tell us about that and why you decided to start writing your novels. It's very funny because I never, I'm dyslexic. So when I was a kid, they just said I was stupid and lazy because no one knew what that word was back then. And um, I never read, didn't read for pleasure. My best friend read all the time. You know, it was what she loved to do. And I never did. I hated reading. And And when I went to ESPN, um, I asked my boss why he hired me. And he said, oh, because you're a really good writer. And no one had ever said that to me before. I was shocked. I never thought I was a good writer. And then when I went, uh, got out of television and went into print writing, well, I mean, let's face it, I wrote hundreds of stories over the course of a week in TV, hundreds. Well, then I started writing for newspapers and magazines, and I actually had more space to tell a story. I, I had a lot of words to tell stories. Moving into writing novels was just the next step. It's just telling a longer story. The weird thing for me is I do not write books about sports at all. Um, I write about, I write fictional accounts using um, societal problems like child abuse and cults and post-traumatic stress and domestic terrorism. And uh, we have a problem with wild horses out here in the West. So I write about things 
in society that are problematic. And that probably a lot of it came from teaching in, in an inner city school for 20 years and dealing with kids who were, who were struggling with a lot of issues. Um, I am a foster mom. Four of my students became my kids. And uh, so it was a difficult place. And what I learned there is that all the stuff I complained about, like, oh, I'm too old to be on TV, poor me, was so ridiculous. Because I dealt with kids every day who had serious problems, serious problems. And I ended up writing books about those kinds of issues. So uh, yeah, I have five uh, published books at the moment. I have a couple more I'm trying to sell. Um, and I, I really enjoy writing. Uh, I, I never thought that. In fact, my best friend growing up, when she found out I was an author, she goes, how the hell did you ever become an author? I'm like, the world is mysterious. I don't know. And the fact that I don't write about sports always seems to confuse people. Well, that was going to be my next question. I know you are a foster mom. So what made you decide to become a foster mom? Um, the school I taught in was gangs. Um, it, it was a very, it's, it's a bad part of Phoenix and it's a difficult place. Uh, I will admit that. And there's so many kids. We had maybe 400 kids in foster care and I knew nothing about foster care, nothing. And at the end of every school year, I would put my phone number, even though they told you never to do this, but I did put my phone number on the board. And I said, look, guys, if you get in trouble over the summer and you don't know who to call, call me and I will do what I can to help you. And, and I was very fortunate because I, I taught newspaper that I had the same kids year after year a lot. So I got to know them very well. Anyway, this one kid who I barely knew, I had him half of one semester. He started calling me one summer. He was 14 little tiny kid. And, and I kept thinking, I said, Brandon, is there something I can help you with? And he goes, no, no, I just wanted to say hello. And I'll see you in class when school starts. I said, okay, school started. He wasn't there. And I called the number that he called me on and uh, it was disconnected. So I worried for a couple of weeks and then he called me and he, he said, I'm hungry. I said, you're what? He said, well, I'm in foster care. And they won't feed me. And and I'm going to a new school and the school doesn't have my paperwork for lunch. So they won't feed me lunch either. And I'm hungry. I was horrified. I was angry. I went out in the hall and I'm stomping around. And, and another teacher came up to me and I said, I can't believe in this country we do not feed children. And the teacher looked at me. And she said, well, if you're so upset about this child, why don't you call foster care and say you'll be his mother? And I said, don't be ridiculous. I said, I'm 55. I couldn't have any children of my own, which used to make me feel bad, but I, you know, got over it. And I said, I'm not, I've never been a mother. I don't know how to be a mother. And she guilted me into calling foster care. And uh, two weeks later, a child was dropped on my front porch. And I'm not going to tell you it was easy because let's face it, nobody wants teenagers. No foster parents want teenagers. They want little, the little babies, right? And it was it was difficult, but it was the best thing I've ever done. And if anything else, TV did did me a favor by kicking me out the door when they did, because if I never became a teacher, I'd never become a mom. And now I'm a grandma. So it's it's really it's changed my life exponentially. Um, I have different relationships. Two of the kids are my legal were my legal foster kids. Um, another one just chose to call me mom. Another one lived here for five years, has a mom. It's a, it's gets a little complicated, but generally they all consider me their mom. And, and I am, I am. 
And I'm I'm really glad I did it. And I wish more people would, because here in Arizona, we have, I don't know, 15,000 kids languishing in foster care. And I'm not going to tell you it's easy. It's not. And, and uh, but it's very rewarding. And I'm glad I did it. Most definitely. So tell us about, you mentioned in your bio, some of your passions, which I don't know how you have time to do them, but when you have time, <laughs> you do them. So kind of tell the listeners about that and why you like them so much. Well, for years, my my avocations were officiating uh, baseball and football for the most part. And and I, I loved baseball, but after 25 years of that, and I'm, if you love baseball, maybe you know this feeling. Have you ever been hit with a baseball? I can gladly say I have not. And right. I be. Uh, and, and it's awful. I mean, I've been hit with hundreds of baseballs because, you know, I'm behind the plate or even out in the field. I've been hit a few times and it's brutal. If, if I go to a game, a real game, and there's a line drive into the seats, I'm like flying under the seats. Everybody else is reaching out. I'm like, you people are insane. You've probably never been hit by, by a baseball. So I quit officiating baseball maybe 10 years ago. Um, but football, I did until 2019. I did it 40 years. I miss baseball. I mean, I miss football all the time, more than I miss teaching, more than I miss being a reporter. Uh, I loved being uh, on the football field. You're a football fan, can I guess? Dallas Cowboys all the way. Oh, no, not that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, well, okay, then how many referees are on a football field? Uh there is, I know, the head official and backup. I, I've actually never paid attention to the referees. Well, it's kind of a trick question because there's the same number of referees on every football field, whether it's Pop Warner or the NFL. There's only one. One. Really? The rest are umpires, back judge, side judge. They're different positions. There's only one referee. That's the one yeah, with the I white. I never knew that. Yeah, I win beer on that all the time. One referee. So I, for 14 years, was a side judge, uh, worked other positions, but men kept throwing me off their crews because they said, we're never going to get the big games because you're a woman. And they were right. And I got annoyed. So I said, screw it. I'm going to be the referee. I'm going to make my own crew. I'm going to wear the white hat and I'm going to go holding 76 offense. I'm going to do that part. And men, I'm going to, I stood up in a meeting. I said, I'm forming a crew. And guys, came up, you know, it wasn't easy. A lot of times guys didn't want to work with me. But anyway, I became the referee. So the last 24 years of my career, I was the uh, the ref. And I, I really liked that part. So I miss that. Don't do football anymore. Um, my other hobbies, I've been a mineral collector my whole life. I have uh, about 400 specimens just in my living room. And I'm lucky my youngest son is really into it too. So here in Arizona, we have 100,000 abandoned mines. And uh, we have all kinds of beautiful minerals to collect here. So I love to do that. Um, I'm also a scuba diver. And uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, I have a home in uh, St. Croix in the Virgin Islands and where I can just uh, look out my back porch and there's the Caribbean. So uh, I love to dive, uh, but, um, you know, I can't do that here in Arizona. So uh, I love to do that. And uh, I dabble in the guitar. I'm not very good. And I used to like to be in musical theater. Yeah. yeah. I did that when I was young and then I didn't do it for years and like 30 years. And then some friends conned me into auditioning for a play and I got a big part and I had to sing and tap dance and do all this crazy stuff. And I really enjoy it, but it's a big commitment 
to do that. And I might get back into it. And then, then COVID hit and all the theaters shut down. So I haven't done any lately, but I do really enjoy that. Okay. Well, you're a busy woman. Do you have any current upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about? Um, I have two books I'm trying to sell right now. My agent of 14 years retired in December. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of a drift. Oops. Sorry. Kind of drift without her. But um, I, a friend of mine had most, all my books are, have been placed in Arizona. Um, and, but then a friend of mine was facing a very difficult surgery. She might, uh, they had to operate on her spine and she could have ended up in a wheelchair the rest of her life. And her husband was a soldier and he didn't do well in hospitals. So she asked me to come and be her medical power of attorney uh, at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And I went there and the night before the surgery, she hands me this plastic bag full of 75 year old letters from World War II. And she said it was her uncle and she'd never met him. And he, he, he died at the very, after the war ended in Europe. And he, he was a member of a graves company. And do you know who they, those guys are? No, I can say that I don't know who they are. Um, they are the guys that pick up, identify, and bury the dead. And you've never seen a movie about them or read a book about them because everybody acts like they don't exist. But I traced her uncle's letters. He was at Normandy. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He was with Patton in Czechoslovakia. And his job and the job of all the men with him were to collect, identify, and bury the dead and build the cemeteries. So if you go to Europe or any one of 21 countries, I think, there are American cemeteries that our soldiers built. And, and most of those men are, are, you know, didn't come home. They're, they're still in those cemeteries. So he, he died mysteriously at the end of the war. And she asked me to write a book about him. And I did. And it's called Forgotten Sons. So I, I'm trying to sell that, but it's a tough sell because it's neat. It's pretty horrible. The stuff these men went through. And, um, you know, will somebody buy it? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, well, so everybody can keep up with everything that you're up to, throw out your contact information, any websites you might have. Yes, I, my website is annmontgomerywriter.com, and that's Ann with an E. So it's annmontgomerywriter.com. Um, all of my links are there. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all those things. Um, I blog every week. I like to, I still write articles. That's kind of fun. Uh, I write about anything I feel like writing about, which is, which I enjoy. It's like, I'm still a reporter, uh, but all of my books are there. Uh, my books can be bought pretty much anywhere that books are sold. Um, and, and pretty much that's what I'm, I'm doing right now. It, being an author is, is mostly what I do. Okay. We'll close this out with some final thoughts. Maybe something that I forgot to touch on that you would like to talk about or just any final thoughts you have for the listeners. I can't think of anything right offhand, um, except if you can volunteer to work with kids, I ask you to try to do it. There's so many kids out there who have no one really in their corner. Um, teachers try, but they've got so much on their plates and they try to, to connect with each child, but it's hard. So if you have the time and the inclination, um, there's something called a CASA, which is a, a person who's paired with a foster child, not the foster parent, but a, another adult who might take a kid out to lunch or go watch them play football or whatever they do. And, and they desperately need these people. 
So if, if people can volunteer to help a kid, I think it's one of the most important things we can do. Absolutely, ladies and gentlemen. There's kids all over the, the country and the world that need you. So if you can volunteer, go ahead and do it. And Montgomery Writer, please be sure to check out everything that Anne's up to, support her, pick up her book, and keep up with everything that she's up to. If you have any guests or suggestion topics, see Jackson 102 at Cox.net is the place to send them. Thank you for listening. And Anne, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for inviting me, Curtis. I enjoyed it. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.